Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. How are you guys? Thank you. Wow, such pressure. I hope I don't. I hope I don't mess up now. All right. <laughs> I know. I know. I asked the first services. It was nice to see you guys, and I told them it's good to be seen too. So, hey, we're uh, we're in uh, the Book of Esther. And uh, started a series. Jay's done a great job of opening that uh, story for us of, of the book of Esther. And if you've missed uh, the last couple of Sundays, uh, we, started this, uh, we started this study. Uh, we continue to look at the, this unique book, unique in many, many ways, uh, because it, it, this is a book that doesn't mention the, the name of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but it makes it, uh, makes it a challenge, makes it a, a unique, but it's so special, and it's really important for us, uh, particularly during these times that we live in uh, today. Uh, Jay talked about the fact that the, the, the Israelites had been conquered by the Assyrians, and one of the things that conquering countries would do in those days is they would take the leaders, they would take the educated, uh, they would take them out of their home country, and they would move them uh, into other places, they would move them to their uh, capital to try to get them to assimilate into this culture. And also, if they took the leaders out, if they took the most educated out, uh, the theory was that there was less uh, chance that, that those people would rebel uh, back in their home country. And so the Assyrians conquered uh, the Israelites, and then the Babylonians conquered them, and they moved more people out. In fact, they did it twice, uh, we know that the prophet Jeremiah was moved out in the second exile uh, of the Israelites. And then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and again, they were moved out. So by the time, uh, by the time we get to the book of Esther, this has been happening for generations. So we have a group of people that are living in the Persian Empire who have never seen Jerusalem. They've never been to the temple. They've spent their whole lives now for generations living in a different country, uh, living in exile, living under the, the rulership of a different country. And we come to this point now and we're at the, the, the empire, uh, the Persian empire. I have a map for us uh, up here that you can get a, a bit of a look at it. But one of the unique things is that the Persian empire stretched from Europe's Balkan Peninsula uh, in parts that are present-day Bulgaria, Romania, and Ukraine, to the Indus River Valley in northwest India and south to Egypt. The Persians were the first people to establish regular routes of communication between the three continents of Africa, uh, Asia, and Europe. They built many new roads develop, and developed the world's first postal system. You see, we think that we inv in invented the Pony Express, but they actually had uh, a postal system that they would set up stations around the Persian Empire, and they would keep horses there, and so the courier would ride from one station to another, get a fresh horse, and continue on, and they, that's how they got word around the entire Persian Empire. So they, they did a lot of things. They were uh, huge, ginormous. The center of the Persian Empire is the country today of Iran. And so you get a sense of how big, uh, how important it was in those days. 
And so they were living in exile. There was, um, there was a king named Xerxes, and in our version it says Ahasuerus. Uh, Ahasuerus is the, the king of the Persian Empire, but that's his real name his, uh, uh, was Xerxes, but the Hebrews for some reason called him Ahasuerus. Now, we are gonna look at the third chapter of Esther. We're going to continue the story uh, that Jay has started for us. And so let's begin chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Amadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, uh, Haman, but the king had so command, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So here's the scene, first two verses. Now this is the part when you start an Old Testament story that your eyes kind of glaze over. You get to the names that are like the whole alphabet. Uh, you get things you can't pronounce and you go, why do they keep putting these in there? I'm just gonna skip over this part, get to the real story. But if you skip over the first two verses uh, of Esther 3, you're gonna miss a really big part of the story uh, and here is why. We already know about Mordecai. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther. He adopted her when her parents died, so he's raised Esther like his own daughter. He's a central character in this story, but we also have this King Ahasuerus, who's the king of Persia, and he promotes a man named ha Haman the Agagite, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now, why is that important to us? Why does that really matter? You can just, just, just for fun, say it three times really fast. No, no, don't do that. But why does that matter? Why don't we just skip that part? And here's, here's the reason. Uh, Haman, who is appointed, who rises in leadership, this is five years after Esther has made the, the queen of Persia. Uh, he rises to this position. He's second only to King Xerxes. Uh, he has his own throne. Uh, Xerxes commands that when Haman walks through the gates, everybody bows down and pays homage to him. But the other part are the names. His father is Hamadatha. Uh, he, they are Agagites. Uh, Agagites were part of the tribe of the Amalekites. Now, why are the Amalekites important to us? And this is the reason, because when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, Moses won a war against the Amalekites. They went to battle. Hundreds of years later, uh, kings, uh, oh, let me, Moses, Moses' story. You remember this story? Because when Moses, when they were in battle, if Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. When his arms got tired, they started to lose. So he had two of his men hold up his arms, and the children of Israel won that battle against the Amalekites. Very famous story. Well, then you get to, to the King Saul, the first king of Israel. He goes to battle hundreds of years later against the Amalekites. They defeat the Amalekites in that battle. Uh, their king, Agog, is taken captive. But God had commanded through the prophet Samuel that they wipe out the army, that they don't take any of the plunder, that they keep themselves pure, uh, and, and that Agai was not supposed to survive that battle. Saul disobeys God's law. He disobeys God's word, and he keeps plunder. He lets his men keep some of the plunder, and they bring King Agag uh, into their camp. Uh, eventually, Samuel's going to come in, and he's going to execute King Agag. King Agag of the Agagites 
of the, Amalek tri uh, the, the Alamekites tribe. And so now what we understand is that there's hundreds of years of enmity, hundred year, hundreds of years of war, hundreds of years of bloodshed uh, between the Amalekites uh, and the children of Israel. So Haman, we, if we pay attention to those first two verses, one thing we understand right away is that Haman hates the Jews. He, he, he comes from a long line of Amalekites who hate the Jews. There's been enmity and war between them for centuries. They don't forget that kind of hatred. They don't forget that kind of anger. And so he is raised up to this high position. And when he walks by, everybody has to bow down to him, except Mordecai doesn't do it. Some of, his, uh, some of the other leaders that sit at the gate, there was a huge gate. It was like a courtyard uh, that would lead to the palace uh, in the capital of Susa. And that's where a lot of legal business happened. That's where a lot of uh, transactions happened. Uh, it was a large space. And so the leaders of the community would meet there. And that's where they would haggle out business deals and banking and all kinds of things at that gate. Mordecai is at the gate. He's one of the leaders in the community. Haman comes through and Mordecai doesn't bow. Everyone else bows down to Mordecai or, or to Haman except for Mordecai. And some of, some of the other leaders at the gate, they go to Haman and they say, this guy, this guy Mordecai isn't bowing down to you. And further, he's a Jew. And this starts all kinds of trouble. So, so here's the thing that's so interesting. Just keep this in mind. M Mordecai, how hard would it be just to bow down, really? I mean, seriously. The king's commanded everybody to bow down. They're, all around him, everybody's bowing down, and, and Mordecai decides, I'm going to stay standing. I'm not going to bow down to him. Now, some people and some historians have thought that because of the, the enmity between the Amalekites and the Israelites, that naturally he's not going to bow down to him. But there's a bigger part to this story. There's something more important to this story. Let's look at a, a few more verses because Mordecai has something really important to remind us. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews and the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Hashuaris. So here's what, here's what Haman decided. Yeah, I could just kill Mordecai. I could just execute him for what's happened, but I have a better idea. This is my excuse. This is my opportunity to wipe out all of the Jews, to take them all out uh, in one shot, to take them all out in one sweep. I've been given my chance to, to do something that none of my ancestors have been able to do, and, and that's to get rid of the Jews. And, and so he has this big idea, this big picture, that his hatred uh, is finally going to lead them to, to lead him to get rid of all of the Jews. Now, here's the thing that you got to understand, that after all of these centuries, after all of these years of living in exile, there are probably half a million Jews living in the Persian Empire. 
that there are people who have been born uh, in exile and they've had children and they've had children and they've had children. And so there are generations of people who have never lived in Israel, who have never been to Jerusalem, who don't know any of that, but they have lived in, in you know, Babylon. They, they've lived in Persia. They're part of the Persian Empire and there are probably half a million Jews living in exile in the Persian Empire and Mordecai decides, I'm gonna get rid of all of them. Why, why would, or Haman decides, I'm sorry, to get rid of all of them. Why would Mordecai do that? Why would Mordecai risk all of that? Why would Mordecai decide, I'm gonna stand no matter what happens. I'm gonna stand even if everybody else is bowing. I'm gonna stay standing. It wasn't because he hated the Amalekites, but there's another reason. And we find it in God's word. We find it in God's law that that Mordecai was a Jew. And even though he had never been to Jerusalem and even though he had never been to the temple, all of the stories of God's provision, all the stories of God's justice, all the stories of God's commandment had been passed on to him. They had been passed on generation after generation after generation. That, that there was something that every Jewish boy, whether he lived in Jerusalem or whether he lived in Persia, would learn about the age of seven. They would memorize it. They would never forget it. They would, they would say it to each other. They would sing it in songs. It was part of their regular time together. Uh, and that is the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The great commandment. They all memorized that. And then they all memorized something else. They all knew the Ten Commandments. They all knew those ten most important laws. There were all kinds of laws for the Jews at this time, but they would remember those ten. Those ten were their true north. Those ten were the things that they stood on, the things that wouldn't change, the thing that for generations after generation after generation they held on to, they lived by. They were more important than anything else. And Mordecai knew those ten commandments, and what came to him were the first two that God had given him. The first of two commandments... In Exodus 20, beginning at verse 2, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And when Haman walked through the gates and Mordecai saw him and everyone was commanded to bow down in a worshipful position, Mordecai said, I bow to no one but God. I stand on the commandments of God. You see, in the ancient world, uh, rulers, they, they often... Uh, talked about themselves as gods or descendants of the gods. You know, the, the Caesars were famous for this. There was a whole cult of Caesar worshipers who would say, Caesar is Lord. It was true in Persia, too, that Xerxes was treated like a god, and he said, I want you to treat Haman the same way, and when he walks through, I want you to bow in homage to him and Mordecai said, I'm standing on the word of God. I'm standing on the Ten Commandments, and we bow to no other gods but the true God, the one God, the creator God. 
the God of the universe. And so he stood. In spite of everything going on around him, in spite of all of the risk, in spite of all the implications of what might happen, Mordecai said, I'm going to stand on God's word. I'm going to stand on the commands of God. I'm going to stand on those commands that I was raised with, that my father was raised with, that his father was raised with, and on down the line, and and we are still standing on those, and he refused to bow. And so here's the first question. This is really the central question of uh, of, of the sermon this morning, and that is simply this. I want you to think about it in the context of this whole story. Are you standing or are you bowing? Are you standing this morning or are you bowing? Mordecai chose to stand and it was going to cost. It was going to cost him a lot. Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And here's uh, Esther chapter 3, verses, beginning in verse 7. It says this, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they, the, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, that was their form of dice. That's how they made their major decisions as to when certain things would happen or certain things would be celebrated. They would cast lots for those things, and those were called pur. Uh, they, it was the twelfth month, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that is not the king's, uh, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it to the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them as it seems good to you. Now most of us aren't familiar with the Feast of Purim, but it is a feast that if you were, a, if you were practicing Jew today, you would know that every March or April that you would celebrate that feast, and it is a feast to remember how God saved his people in the story of Esther at this time. Haman goes to Xerxes. He offers him a bribe. It's roughly equivalent to 300 tons of silver, like the gross domestic product of the country. If, uh, and so it tells us that Haman was a very, very wealthy man. And he will do this if the king will let him get rid of these people. Do you notice that he doesn't name who they are? He just says, these people. These people who are breaking your law. These people who are not bowing to you. These people who are, are, are not committed to you, these people who worship different, they think different, they're they're different people. He said, we need to get rid of those people. And Xerxes doesn't even ask them who it is. He doesn't ask him any questions. He looks at the money and he decides, let's go for this. I'm not gonna ask any questions. Here's my signet ring, the ring of my authority. Do whatever you think is best, go for it. You can wipe out an entire population of people. You can wipe out an entire people group if you want to, you have my permission, and that's where it stood, and he didn't even know who they were talking about. He didn't even care. 
Then in verse 12, it says this, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict uh, according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king, uh, Hashawaras, and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So here's how it goes out. We're sending a decree out, and on one day, we're going to rally all of the troops. On one day, we're going to get all the people, and it is a slaughter of all of the Jews. It's not just the leadership, it's not just the men, but it's the men, the women, the children, everybody needs to die. You get to take all of their, we're going to plunder all of their goods. We're going to take all of the money, all of the wealth that they've accumulated, their houses. We're going to take everything that's theirs. It's going to be ours and they'll be done with the Jews. That's the edict that he sends out. And King Xerxes doesn't even know who he's talking about. He doesn't pay attention to any of this. And so the couriers went out. And they went out hurriedly by order of the king, and a decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And here's, here's how the passage finishes in verse 15. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The, how, how, do the, how does uh, Haman and Xerxes... Um, how do they commemorate that moment when they're going to wipe out 500,000 people? They have a drink together. They toast it. We're powerful. We can, by, our, by, by a stroke of our pen, we can wipe out 500,000 people. By our word, we can change the destiny of a whole people group. Uh, we have the power. We have the authority. Look at us. Toast. And they drank together. And the people in the capital were in confusion. They were in turmoil because here's what it said. Who's next? You've been conquering countries. You've been moving people. And we're a different people group. And what if we're next? What if you decide you don't like us next? What's going to happen to us? What's gonna, the, the, the Jews have done really well here. They have wealth. They have property. They've married their children. They have uh, had grandchildren here. They've done all of that. And now you're saying we're going to wipe them out in one day. We're going to swoop in and kill all of them. And who's next? What's going to happen next? So they are thrown into confusion. So here's the question this morning. Are we standing? Are we bowing? Because it's a big deal. There are implications. I, I've been thinking about this. And, and one thought that I've had is how hard it is, how hard it is today to be led by the Bible. Just saying it sounds a little old-fashioned, doesn't it? Just saying, well, I'm going to stand on the Bible. I'm going to be led by the Bible, and it just, it, it, it sounds a little archaic. It sounds a little old-fashioned to us. I was talking with some friends the other night, and it's amazing how much entertainment and information is available to us. There's so much TV now. You can watch cable or subscribe to a service and, and they're making all original content that, that you can only get from that service. 
you can't, you can get YouTube TV, Apple TV, Hulu TV, the Disney Channel, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, and then when you're coming out of your TV coma, you can go to the movies, and there are news channels on TV, on your computer, on your phone, and if you can't find what you want, you can simply Google it, and it's there somewhere for you. On top of that, we feel busy and stressed and overwhelmed and depressed from work and family and friends, and we feel trapped, and yet we feel like we're too busy to read the Bible. We feel like we're too busy to read the Scripture. We may read a book sometimes about the Bible, but we never seem to quite get the time to read the Bible itself. And I know Mordecai didn't have any of this. He didn't have the internet, he didn't have cable, he didn't have any of those things, but he was a really busy person. He was an influential person. He was a leader. He had been a leader of the exiles. He had lots of responsibilities, but he stood on God's word and he wouldn't compromise on what God had commanded. That mattered to him. The psalmist said, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Mordecai knew that. And he had stored God's word in his heart so that when challenges came, when temptations came, he relied on God's word. He relied on what God had commanded. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see how God kept his promise to Mordecai and to Esther and to the Jews. But let me tell you something else that I've been thinking about this week. I, I've been thinking about Jesus and, and the challenge that Jesus faced, the greater challenge that we'll ever understand uh, that Jesus faced. And, and, and I think that for Jesus, it was to be the Messiah, but maybe to be the Messiah without the suffering. To maybe it was to wear the crown without having to go through the suffering, without having to deal with the, with the cross, and without having to go through the betrayal and, and all of the pain and all that. Maybe it was, yeah, I want to be the Messiah, the, the Messiah, but is there any way to get around all the other stuff? But Jesus stood on God's word. One New Testament scholar named F.F. F. Bruce uh, famously wrote this. Time and time again, the temptation came to Jesus from many directions to choose some less, less costly way of fulfilling his calling than the way of suffering and death. But he resisted it. He resisted this his temptation to the very end. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the desert, some of you know the story that Satan comes to him and says, you can be the Messiah. You, you can be the great one. You, you can be the Messiah without the hunger. So turn these stones into bread. And you can be the Messiah without the pain. Throw yourself down and, and command your angels to catch you, to bear you up. And you can be the Messiah without the opposition, without the scandal. Just bow before me and all the kingdoms of this earth I will give you. And how did Jesus respond to that? How did he respond to each temptation that was thrown at him? with the scripture. He used the scripture that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That every time he was tempted, every time he was challenged, every time there was an opportunity to skirt the pain and to skirt the trouble and, and to skirt death, he chose God's word. He stood on the promises of God. He didn't give in. He didn't go around. 
but he stood on God's promises. Later on, he tells his disciples that he's going to have to suffer and die, and Peter pulls him aside, you remember this, and, and Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, stop that talk. None of this is going to happen. We've got your back. You don't have to go through that pain. You don't have to go through the suffering. You don't have to go through any of those things. We've got you. And what was Christ's response? He says, get behind me, Satan. I have to be faithful to God's command. I have to be faithful to what I've been called to do. He stands on God's truth. He stands on God's word. He continues on. Later on, He's, he uh, wrestles in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he talks to the Father and he says, Father, if, if there's any other way to do this, if there's any other way to accomplish this mission, then take this cup from me because this is painful, this is frightening, this is about lostness, this, this is about destitution. I, I don't want to have to go through this. And then he said, but not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. He stood on God's command. He trusted God in spite of everything going on around him. And he was still standing. And we know how that story ends, don't we? We know God's faithfulness in that story. That's what Jesus did. I'd rather not suffer, but I'll embrace the mission of the cross. I'll embrace that temptation out of faithfulness, out of promise to God. And then we get to our life, your life and mine, and, and, and we're part of this mission, God's story. It's God's mission to the world. And, and, and you know, this is going where Esther goes behind the scenes and, and looks at life. It's the only book in the Old Testament that never mentions the word God, and I think there's a reason. I think there's a reason for it. I think it's because, as often is the case in our lives, God is just off stage. You can't see him but he's the main character in the story. He is at work. He is shaping history for his mission, for his purposes. And the writer keeps bringing this up and the writer keeps reminding us that there's a law that's unalterable. There is a will that will not be turned, but it isn't the law of the Medes and the Persians. It's God's law, it's God's word, it's God's promise. How is it that of all the women in the Persian Empire, a Jewish girl named Esther is the one that becomes the queen? Is that an accident? Is that a mistake? Is that a coincidence? No, God is at work behind the scenes. We don't see him. He's not named, but he is still at work. And in my life, there are so many times when I wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? But I know that God is at work, that he is faithful. He has been faithful throughout history, and he will continue to be faithful in my life, and he'll continue to be faithful in your life. God is faithful. How is it that of all the people in the Persian Empire, that Mordecai is the one who hears about a plot to assassinate Xerxes, and he lets them know, and they avert an assassination attempt. Because God was up to something big, that God had his plan, that God was at work, and Mordecai chose to stand when everybody else was bowing. The writer of this book wants us to understand that even in exile, no Jerusalem, no temple, no Sanhedrin, unseen, unknown, unnamed, in unlikely ways, think about this, in unlikely ways, in mangers, 
on crosses, in carpools, in cubicles. God is present. God's at work. He was for Esther, and he is for you, and he is for me. I'm going to invite the band to come back up to the stage. We're going to sing. They're going to sing for us. And here's what I'd like you to think about. Am I standing or am I bowing? Because here, here's the thing. Maybe, maybe you're not so worried about the, the pain. Maybe you're not so worried about suffering. Maybe you're not so worried about things going wrong. But, but you do think about pressure. Uh, you, you do think about everybody else is bowing. And people think I'm stupid for standing. People think it's a little embarrassing to have this one lame person who keeps standing when everybody else is bowing. Everybody else is bowing to the culture. Everybody else is bowing to what's popular. Everybody what's bowing to the sort of the current belief, what's hot right now, what's perfect right now, what seems good right now. And, and if I'm the only one standing, it's humiliating. Or are we standing or are we bowing? Are we going to stand on the truth of God's word? Are we going to stand on the promises of God's word? Are we going to bow? In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thanks, sir. How do you fight your battles this morning? How do you fight your battles? Yeah, have you, you know, here, here's the thing I don't want you to do. I, I don't want you to go home today and say, I'm going to stand. I don't care who's bowing, I'm going to stand. It's about me. I'm going to stand straighter. I'm going to stand stronger. I'm going to stand. Because that's not what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about is when our heart and our mind is yielded to God, when it becomes about Him, when it's His strength that we're counting on. When Jesus was in that garden that night, uh, and he said, Father, is there any way to take this cup, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus won the battle for the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he was just finishing it from there, but he won it on his knees. And if you want to fight the battle this morning, if you want to be standing no matter who's bowing, you want, to be, you want to do battle on your knees, you want to give it to God, you want to trust him. It's not about us. It's not about how strong we are. It's not about how important we are or how smart we are, but it's about our reliance on who God is, on his commandments, on his strength. And then the other thing that Jesus did is that he stood on the word of God. He calls us to stand on the word of God, that we store his word in our heart that we might not sin against him. I, I talk to people all the time that tell me, oh, I just have these fears. I have these struggles in my life. And I said, let's do this. When you feel that struggle, when you feel that fear, let's replace it with God's word. Let's be reminded. Let's put in our heart Let's change those tapes from that fear and that struggle to God's promises and the truth of who he is. And let's stand on God's word. Let's stand on his truth because it's about him this morning. So are you standing or are you bowing this morning? Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Esther, the promise of your protection, the promise of your care. Lord, that you are at work in history and in the world, whether we see it or not. And we give you praise this morning, Lord, and we need your strength. We need your courage. We need your peace that we stand on your promises, Lord. We stand on your strength when maybe it feels like everybody else around us is bowing. Lord, we trust you. We give ourselves to you. I pray that blessing over everyone in this room today. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.